free to grab a seat, grab a seat. We're going to go ahead and, and get started here. If you have your Bibles, open up to Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, we're going to be in Ephesians 6 verses 21 through 24 this morning. And this is our uh, last sermon in our sermon series in Ephesians. Have you all enjoyed it? It's been good, right? It's been, uh, I've had some top favorites that I've preached through and uh, as a pastor, uh, Acts being one of them, Daniel being up there, but Ephesians is definitely up there. And so as you're turning to Ephesians 6, 21 through 24, uh, the, el- the elders and I felt that it was uh, necessary for us to address what's happening in Israel right now. And so um, we're going to take about half of the message to talk about the Christian response to this, and then the other half will close out with uh, Ephesians. And so in case you missed the news this last week, uh, Hamas led a, a terrorist attack in Israel, uh, killing 1,300 innocent men, women, and, and children. And I won't go into detail because there's young kids here, but it was barbaric, it was evil, and it was demonic. It was awful. And now full-scale conflict has broken out between Hamas and Israel with more death and tragedy and the scary potential for more nations getting involved in this conflict. And if you're like me this week, you've been uh, obsessively watching and reading the news, and uh, you have been a roller coaster of emotions where you've had fear and sorrow and rage and confusion. Um, and we want to take time today to ask and answer this question How are we as God's people, the beloved, the redeemed of God, followers of Jesus Christ, to respond in moments like this? Because each and every one of us this week, somebody, whether it's on YouTube or a podcast or a politician, has been telling us how we are to respond. And so we think it's critically necessary as believers gather today for us to go to Christ our King and to his word and look at what are some ways that Christ is inviting us to respond in this season, to be a calm, non-anxious presence in a world that is full of anger, rage, and anxiety. Christ has something better to offer us, and as we say yes to his invitation to follow him where he's leading us in this moment, then we have an invitation to offer others a true hope, a true peace, uh, a true rest for their souls that can only be found in knowing the salvation that comes in Jesus Christ alone. So I'm going to look at five thoughts uh, today for our time. This surely is not an exhaustive list, but five things came to mind as as I was praying and prepping for this Sunday. One of the first things that I think we as Christians need to do is we need to take time to grieve. We need to take time to grieve. Tragically, in moments like this, we bypass this step and immediately start getting really, really angry and yelling at each other and pointing the finger and blaming each other. And so what happens then is that the evil of this event is compounded by the evil of our responses and the divides between party lines is is further fractured between us and our quote-unquote enemies. And in contrast to responding in rage, first and foremost, our hearts should break for those who are suffering from this conflict and from that terrorist attack. We should have empathy. We should have sorrow. We should uh, put ourselves in the shoes uh, of those on both sides. And, and, and there are Palestinian Christians and pastors in Gaza now, uh, and innocent men and women, children on, on both sides now uh, in response to this war. And that's tragic all around. That's tragic all around. And so before we uh, rush to take sides and point fingers and blame, it's, it's Christ-like in our nature to respond in grief, in tears, in sorrow. Uh, in John 11, we, 
see the story of Jesus and Lazarus. If you know the story, Jesus uh, got news that a, a dear friend of his was sick to the point of dying. And Jesus shows up a few days later, and Lazarus is dead, four days dead. And Jesus knows, he has told everyone who has a listening ear, that Lazarus is going to rise again. Jesus knows that Lazarus isn't going to die. Like, he'll be, he'll be back. And yet, we see these conversations that Jesus has with Martha, and then with Mary. And um, what we see is Jesus' response to uh, the curse of sin and death and grief and sorrow. And this is uh, how we see Jesus respond, not necessarily to the, the death of, of Lazarus, but to the sorrow that people dear to his heart uh, were experiencing because of the curse of sin and the death and the destruction that is brought. Verses 11, uh, John chapter 11, 33 and 35, verses will be on the screen. Watch this. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And then in verse 34, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. In Colossians 1.15, it says that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. And then in Colossians 1.19, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, that Jesus Christ was the word, the, the logos, the, the divine that became flesh and dwelt among us, so that if you want to know what God is like, you look no further than the image of the invisible God becoming visible in Christ Jesus. And what we learn about God is that he, it, it, human suffering uh, brings burden and sorrow and grief to his soul to the point that the perfect human being to ever walk the planet Earth, Jesus Christ, wept. When he saw the sorrow that people dear to his heart were walking through. So to be Christ-like is, is to be weeping, to be sorrowful in this moment. And Jesus knew in like 20 minutes, he's having a conversation with all these people, right? Mary and Martha and everyone. And like however far it was from where they were to the grave and however long his speech was going to be at Lazarus' grave. So give or take like 15 minutes before he calls out and calls Lazarus out of the grave. Jesus is like, hey, in about 30 minutes, give or take 15 minutes, Lazarus is breathing again. He's going to stop being dead. And yet, even when Jesus knew the outcome, the present burden and grief and sorrow that humanity had to navigate under the curse of sin moved our great high priest to empathy and to sorrow. And we model that to a, church, to a world that is grieving. When we don't rush to rage, but we first let, our, let us feel emotions that the great high priest is feeling. And it was the, the, the curse of sin uh, uh, and love for humanity under that curse that motivated Jesus to lay down his life to free us from that, to free us from that suffering. And so we see Jesus model that to us, and we are like Christ when we are grieving over uh, 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 human suffering. And that's a Christ-like response before we, before we rush to take sides and yell at each other. The second thing I want to turn us to, and this might be a surprise to you, is, but I feel like this is necessary. The second thing I want to invite us to is we turn from resentment. All these start with the letter T so you can easy to remember. We turn from resentment. Ephesians 4, 26 through 27 says this, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So what we learn here, well, obviously we preached this looking at Ephesians this year, is that we're commanded to be angry. We're commanded to be angry. Like, when you read about what happened on October 7th in Israel, you should be angry. That's a human response. Righteous indignation, anger. It's barbaric. It was awful. It was demonic. It was evil. We should be angry. And so we're commanded to be angry, but we're commanded not to stay angry. Not to stay angry. There's a world of difference there. 
And we need to ask the question, not just how Jesus would want the church of Jesus Christ, his beloved that he bought with his, 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 his death on the cross, how he would want us to respond, but how would the devil want the church of Jesus Christ to respond in this moment? How would Satan love to get a foothold and stronghold in our hearts in this moment? And I think, judging by the nature of the demonic that we talked about in Ephesians 6, Satan would love for followers of Jesus to internalize hatred of people from certain religions, certain ethnicities, and certain political ideologies. Uh, and if you are a follower of Jesus, we don't have that right anymore. God, we, were, uh, we had enmity with God, the scriptures say. We were God's enemies. And Jesus Christ died for me, his enemy, so that I could be the son of the father. And I could be Christ's brother. I could be adopted into you the family of God. I've been shown forgiveness by God. And so my posture in my regenerated, spirit-filled mind and body is for that forgiveness to go to others as well who don't deserve it just like I didn't deserve it. And C.S. Lewis talks about this in Mere Christianity where Satan always gives two options to people. He always presents things in two extremes where, okay, you don't identify with this group, but it's hatred of this group that will make you go all the way over here to this group. And so very well what might happen, the devil would love to get a foothold, or maybe some of us, we just, we're going we're gonna to have just a hatred of, of Muslims in our heart. Or for some of us, depending on where we land, and, and, and maybe it's a hatred of, of Jews. Or maybe it's a hatred of just Palestinians or Israelis, or maybe it's political. Maybe we as followers of Jesus hate the progressive left and how we're seeing people respond there. Or maybe for some of us, it's the radical MAGA hat wearing right that we hate, right? And so the devil would say, this is what the devil would say. Pick a side, any side. Any side is great as long as your heart is full of hate. Any side's great, pick a side. As long as your heart is full of hate, that's great on the devil's behalf. And yet, are we not called, are we, not, are we, are we citizens of this world? We're not. We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We're not of this world. Jesus makes crystal clear in his high priestly prayer. We're not of this world. We're sent to this world as ambassadors of a kingdom of righteousness, as a kingdom of peace, as a kingdom of hope, as a kingdom of salvation. We're ambassadors of that kingdom. That's the king we pledge allegiance to, and that's the kingdom we pledge allegiance to. So we don't bank. We don't push all of our chips on the table on this earth. And so as we draw from the grace of God shown to us in Christ Jesus, and we truly understand the gospel that Jesus died for this sinner to save this sinner from eternal separation from God on no merit of my own, then that gospel softens our heart to uh, not let anyone get away with, with killing innocent people, but praying that, that God would save terrorists. And he does. And I, wanna, I, want, I want us to have a soft heart. I'm not saying we can't, as a, as a church, be voices of, of reason and truth. And, and, I'm, and I've chosen my words carefully when I say demonic and evil and barbaric. And we are the salt of the preservative, moral preservation of society when we don't budge on our convictions and what is true and what is not. But we also, we hold conviction, but we also hold compassion. Compassion in our hands, the compassion of Christ, and it's the gospel that softens our hearts. And so two, two book recommendations that I've read, I haven't read them in a while, but I have read both of these books. One is called The Blood of the Lambs by Kamal Salim. He was a terrorist from Lebanon uh, who came to America to start a terrorist cell and then through some good Southern hospitality and Pentecostal faith came to know Christ, <laughs> all right? It's a great book to read. These books are really fascinating to see God's heart for, for people who are kind of in that radical Islamic camp who want to 
worship uh, their God, thinking they're doing the right thing by killing infidels. And then there's another book of someone who is a member of Hamas. And this one is called Son of Hamas. It's, it's got like 3,000 plus reviews. It's got almost five stars on Amazon. You can look it up, written in 2010. And this is a person who was with Hamas who came to know Jesus. Christ saved some, a terrorist. Two ter- their, their testimonies are fascinating. That God's, and this is what we're going to be looking at as we stop Ephesians. And next week we go to Jonah. And we're going to be looking at, there's a reason Jonah ran full sprint away from Nineveh. Because of how barbaric and savage they were against God's people. And yet, God's saying, I want them to repent. I want them to know my love. Will you go? So we don't, we got to turn from resentment and clothe ourselves in compassion and ask the Lord to soften our hearts. Because here's the bottom line. Proverbs 4.23 says this in the NIV verses will be on the screen. One of my favorite verses of all time. Above all else, above anything and how we respond, anything I'm going to say, above all else, in this moment, you individually guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Everything in your life comes from the overflow of what you're putting in here, what you're putting in here, what you're putting in here. It goes into your heart. And then out of the overflow, out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks and your hands act. And so above all else, what are we responsible for in this moment? What we see scripturally is we are responsible for our hearts. And if we allow resentment to take root, and you hear me this, there is nothing more toxic. There is almost nothing more toxic than a, a root of resentment going unchecked in a believer's heart. It, it, it skews everything. It is poison, it is toxic, and it gives opportunity for the devil to bring destruction. And so today, if this resonates with you, if you've had lots of, uh, if you've been angry, which you should be righteously angry at what we're reading and seeing, but then the invitation is don't stay angry, but go with that anger to the Lord and let him soften your hearts. Let him soften our hearts and let us be about not which side is right, which side is wrong, but being about the gospel going to the ends of the earth and a great revival coming and people coming out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Let's be about our Father's business. If we, if we have bitterness in our hearts, let's go to the Lord in prayer before communion and ask God, God, would you give me your eyes? Would you give me your thoughts in this moment? And would you soften my heart? Third point is let's toil in prayer. Let's toil in prayer. Um, we often just react the way everybody else in the world reacts who doesn't have full access to the throne of grace. We as followers of Jesus has the, have the blood-bought gift of prayer. Talked about this last week. We, we get to run to the throne of grace knowing in Christ's name that our prayers are heard and that God is with us by his spirit. And we can come confidently and boldly with our anger, with our anxiety, and go and just, just back up the dump truck and say, Jesus, the great high priest who can sympathize with our weakness, I need you. And so, like, not shame on us, but, but why would we run immediately where everybody else is running to, to podcasts, to politicians, to post on social media, when we could be running to prayer, running to our king in prayer? And here's the bottom line. The darker the things get in our world, the deeper the church needs to go in our pursuit of God. The darker the things get, the deeper we need to go in our pursuit of God. Because there is, we have nothing unless God gives it to us. And in prayer, God has promised to give us a peace that surpasses all understanding. Philippians 4, 5 through 7 says this. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Christians should be known for our reasonableness in this hour. A calm, non-anxious presence. Not to say we can't struggle. Like I've been struggling with, with anger and resentment. Preaching to myself up here. And fear and uncertainty about the future. I'm the first to raise my hand on that one. 
But Philippians 4, 5 through 7, let our reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. He's saying, listen, we live in, in light of Jesus' second coming. Jesus is coming back. Our redemption is drawing near. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. About anything, we should not be anxious. But in everything, by prayer, well, well then we beg the question, Paul, how do we not be anxious? Do you know what's happening? Paul, you wrote this 2,000 years ago. Do you know what's happened happening since 2020? What do you mean not be anxious? He says, this is what you do with your anxiety in everything, in absolutely everything that faces us. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So if we were to ask, how do we fulfill Proverbs 4.23 to guard our hearts above all else because everything we do flows from it, one of the primary ways we do that is running with our fearful, anxious hearts to the Prince of Peace to get the peace that he can only give us. And it's a great exchange in prayer where we get to go to God with our negative emotion in prayer. And real, the real you has to meet the real God. And when we do that and we wrestle with God in prayer, the promise here is that in a mysterious way, in a unique way, there is a peace that will come in a variety of ways that will guard our hearts and minds from anxiety and from fear and from resentment when we go to prayer. And this is the only way the church will be a calm, non-anxious presence is if we're in the presence of the Prince of Peace. And so the darker things get, the invitation for how we respond is it's not as important for us to be in the know as it is for us to truly get to know the Prince of Peace in this season. So that at work, with play dates, with your neighbors, people can look and we can confuse them with the gospel and say, why are you not freaking out? Why are you not enraged? And you can say, hey, you can just be honest and say, yeah, I've, I've wrestled with these things, but I, I, let me tell you about who I know. Let me tell you about uh, uh, my faith. Let me tell you about the hope that I have in, in Christ and, and the access I have to him in prayer because of not what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done. It gives us an opportunity. And the only way we will be a calm, non-anxious presence to a world that is on fire and dark and filled with anxiety and fear is if we are in the presence of the Prince of Peace, going deeper in our fellowship with him. And so how should we pray for this conflict? Uh, we pray in everything. We make all prayers, Ephesians 6 said, we looked at last week. We pray for this conflict to cease, for in, no more innocent life to be lost, for wisdom for uh, leaders of our nations and the nations that are uh, allied to our nation. We pray for the church in Palestine and Israel, uh, for uh, the spirit to empower them, for the gospel to go forth, that even in this tragedy that we would see uh, the, the more tribulation comes, that the greater outpouring of the spirit we would see, and that we would just pray that revival would come, that uh, we would see a great harvest of souls coming to know Jesus. We pray for everything. We pray that God's will would be done and his kingdom would become, and that the purposes and schemes of the devil would be thwarted. Fourthly, we trust in God. We trust in God. Although this caught us by surprise and caught the world by surprise, it didn't catch God by surprise. God has revealed himself in the scriptures, and he has revealed himself as a God who is sovereign. He is in control. He is over the affairs of human history. And one of the ways his sovereignty manifests is, is this, is that God has a plan. God has a plan. This is all headed somewhere. Human history is on the trajectory towards the fulfillment of God's sovereign plan and purpose, i.e. the reconciliation and restoration of all things. Um, let me put it this way. We are not going to arrive at the new heavens and the new earth by accident. The Father has a date. He knows the date 
the time, place where the sun is coming to split open that eastern sky and to end all wars and to usher in fully and finally his kingdom of peace and righteousness. God's not going to be surprised. He's like, oh my gosh, guys, we, we made it. The made. God's not going to be surprised at it. He's sovereign. He's in control. And what helps me understand is I shared this illustration, I think it was last year, but there was a season where I have three kids and my oldest, for some reason, just got this uh, backseat driving bug. And so it didn't matter if we were going on a long trip or a short trip. The refrain was, not only was it about like how I was driving, but it was about like the routes I was taking, like she knew the roads. And so say for the sake of this illustration, we're on a road trip to go to uh, my parents' cabins in the Shenandoah Valley, which for me is the closest thing to the new heavens and the new earth. And so we're on, I'm on the driver's seat, daddy, who is kind of a little bit wiser and more powerful and smarter than the kids in the back seat in the car seat munching on goldfish. And the refrain that comes from the back seat is, why are we going this way? Pops, you're going westbound 66. There's traffic. You should have popped off on, gone southbound Nutley, taken a right to go westbound on 29 and get around the traffic. What are you doing, Pops? I don't like this way. That, that, was, that was the line that like, made me just laugh. And it was great because I was like, man, it's a great sermon illustration. Um, she said, I don't like this way. Can we go another way? And the fact of the matter for me in that position is like, hey, listen, you aren't, I could try to articulate to you, a five-year-old, why I'm going at this compass point on this, the name of this street. But that wouldn't make any sense to you because you're five. Okay? So I could try to articulate, but you wouldn't understand that my ways aren't your ways. My thoughts aren't your thoughts. I can see things you can't see. I, can, I have foreknowledge. I'm, all, I'm smarter. I can see things you can't see. So I'm not actually going to give you the turn-by-turn direction of how all this plays out. I'm just going to say, well, you just trust me that I have a plan. And that in my, I'm, like, God is a God who's all-loving, who's all-knowing, who's all-powerful, who's all-wise. If there was another way to glory that was not through much tribulation, he would take us that way. But there isn't. He's taking us the way that is the only way to the new heavens and the new earth, which Christ has clearly articulated, is through much tribulation, is how we get there. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And so we don't find our peace for our anxiety in this season from knowing how the, the, the plan all unfolds. We just put our trust and our focus on Christ, knowing that I don't, it doesn't make sense to me, but I know that he has a plan, and all things are leading towards the restoration of all things. He has promised that it is happening, and the Father knows the date. And one of the things I just want to say briefly is this, is one of the ways we try to control our fear in situations like this, especially when Israel is mentioned as a church, is we get to, we try to calm our fears by controlling the situation through obsessing about end-time prophecies. And then we have our Bible open and BBC open. And instead of calming our anxiety, just making us more and more nervous. And then in Matthew 24, I believe it's verse 36, where Jesus said explicitly, the angels don't know, the son doesn't know, only the father knows the day when Christ is returning, the day and the hour. But we're doing our best to make it to that verse. We're saying, yeah, I know the angels don't know, but I'm smart enough. I got BBC. I got 24-7 news access. So it's God the Father and Nick Mudrizo will figure out how this thing unfolds. <laughs> right? And I'm not saying don't be a good student of the Bible. I'm not knocking on people who, who really love to, to, to uh, research it. I'm just checking. I'm just saying, let's heart check. What's your motive with that? 
And I would say this, I would say end time prophecies don't give us the turn by turn direction at all. I would say Jesus gives us a landmark on the road trip. He gives us some landmarks. So going back to the illustration where I'm driving and the kids are on the seat and saying, this is glory. Say, hey, you want to know how we're getting closer and closer to glory? There's some landmarks along the way. I'm not telling you the turn by turn. You will never be able to figure out, oh, well, because this happened now, well, then we know that in 24 days that this is going to give me a break. There's no way. Don't listen. I'm sorry. Don't listen to anyone who says that. I believe it's landmark. Jesus is saying, kids, look out the window. Wars, rumors of wars. Okay. Pestilence. Okay, global pestilence, okay, I know there's been pestilence, okay, oh man, okay. Uh, lawlessness in the last days, oh man, goodness gracious. Okay, so there's some boom, boom, but we're hitting the check marks, right? There's some landmarks we can look at. But then how, what purpose does that serve for us to know that this, uh, there's a lot of things that Jesus invites us to do. One is my last point, is we double down on the cause of Christ, and, and when he returns, he finds us working and doing what he called us to do, which is the greatest commandment, love him and love our neighbors, but he, he, what I want to hone in on is this. I love this verse, man. I love this verse. One of the invitations of Jesus when we see these signs, when we see these landmarks, not the turn by turn, actual, literal, you know, blah, blah, blah. When we see these signs, this is what Jesus, this is the invitation of Christ to the church. Now, when these things begin to take place, watch this. Straighten up and raise your, he- your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So, the, so, so I'm not saying we're in the end times. Well, I mean, we're in between, well, I'll give you a, <laughs> just a heads up, we are in the end times. We're, meaning this, we're in between the first and the second coming of Jesus. So we're already in the end times. That could be another 2,000 years down the road. We're in, the, we're in between the, like, it could, it could be tomorrow, right? And Lord, like Maranatha, like, come Lord Jesus, like, let it be. The Spirit and the Bride say, come, end all wars. Let's, let's come full circle with this thing. Let's get us back to Eden, that shalom, that perfect peace. And what Jesus says is that the posture of his followers in this season is not cowering, hunched over, biting your fingernails, worried when you see these, these landmarks through the window on this road trip to glory. What he says instead is, it's beautiful. Straighten up, shoulders back, chin up. Confident because we know it's playing out just like he said and we're getting closer and closer to glory. So we will be calm, we won't be anxious. Jesus gave us a heads up. He didn't give us the play-by-play. He gave us some landmarks. And so straighten up, church, uh, chin up, the white horse is coming. He's around the corner. It's soon. Today we woke up closer to glory. We're going to be a closer. Either we die and we go to be with Jesus or he's coming closer. But the, what he wants for our church is shoulders back and chin up, saying we of all people do not need to be scared. Jesus said this was all going to happen. Through much tribulation, we will go to glory. And that's our posture Chin up, shoulders back. I love that. Confident that our king is enthroned and confident that as we see these signs that he's, he's getting off his throne and, and, and he's, he's saddling up that white horse. And then the call to us is living in the light, of, in the sound of that gallop, of that gallop, right? And maybe it's a little bit, the gallop of that white horse getting a little bit, a little bit faster, but we are to live our lives in light of that second coming, which leads us to the fifth point that Jesus clearly articulates when we see these signs is we double down on loving the lost and loving our neighbors and loving the church. Not hating other people, not yelling at other people, but, but shining brightly for Christ and loving even our enemies and even those who persecute us to the point of death. We throw ourselves at the cause of Christ. Point number five. We throw ourselves at the cause of Christ. The darker the world gets, the brighter the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ shines both for us and for the world. For us, what we learned through um, 
this tragedy and all the tragedies that uh, we see globally, and especially since 2020, what's happening in our nation, what's happening globally, is just reminds us that this world is not our home. I think since 2020, there's been a great shaking, and I believe it's the Lord's doing. The Lord is shaking us, and he's saying, wake up, church. You are not home yet. Uh, your source of comfort and safety and security doesn't come through financial planning. It comes through me. In Christ Jesus is my only hope in life and death. It's not the American dream, right? I, I met up with a, a really well-respected pastor in the area who for 40 years pastored an amazing church. Uh, he's retired now in his 70s. If I wasn't pastoring this church, I would probably go to his church. I'm not going to tell you church because you guys would probably go to the church. Um, <laughs> it's a great church. <laughs> and I met up with him. And uh, I wanted to know, how does someone for 40 years stay faithful to the calling to pastor one church? And it's beautiful. He's in his 70s now. It's a beautiful conversation. And he's splitting his time now between serving the Lord and going to his uh, farmhouse in the Shenandoah Valley. And my family has property in the Shenandoah Valley. And I was like, man, I came back to Jen. I was like, that's the dream. There it is. Like, man. And, and Jen's like freaking out because like, she doesn't want to like spend all her time in cabin in the woods. You know, she wants to see people. But I'm like, oh, my gosh, I can write books. I can read. I can drink coffee. And then I'll be like, I'll, I'll come back for a couple days. And then I'll go back. To, and, all that stuff. and then... I'm looking at all that, and then I'm looking, and I'm going, man, American dream's a lie. Everything's uncertain, right? And thank you, God, for that, because I realize that's an idol in my heart. Okay, just financially planned, just right. The world has to be not at war. Our economy has to be perfectly, you know, balanced. No banks just all of a sudden disappearing like they happen. For that to happen, it's an idol. It's the source of my security, it's the source of my joy. It's the source of my comfort found in Christ alone. And, and this morning, uh, I have a day one journal app. So every year or two years or five years, it shows you on this day what you, what you read. It's, it's great. I highly recommend you, you get this app or an app like it where you get these reminders. So I woke up this morning, and I was reviewing this from 2018. And I actually don't know what book this is from, but it's from a Christian author, but he's quoting The Pilgrim's Progress. And I think this perfectly shows us um, the invitation of Jesus in this season to, um, for me uh, and, and for the church in the West, maybe we're wrestling with being apathetic and lukewarm in our faith and our zeal for God. And this is what uh, the author says, and he's going to quote Pilgrim's Progress. In the second part of the Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan describes a scene in the house of the interpreter. interpreter. Christina, the wife of the pilgrim, who has now followed him on her own journey to the celestial city, is shown a strange sight, and this is the sight quoting Pilgrim's Progress. A man that could look no way but downwards. Did you guys catch that? Right, we need to lift up our chins and look to Christ in this moment. But there's a man that she sees who can look no way but downwards with a muckrake in his hand. I don't know what a muckrake is, but it's a rake that, I guess, rakes muck. It's not a good thing. With a muckrake in his hand. And there stood also someone over his head, watch this, with a celestial crown in his hand the crown of eternal life, the crown of salvation, the invitation to find true and abundant everlasting life in Jesus Christ. And offered to give him that crown for his muckrake. Just give me your muckrake and I'll give you this crown. Give me your care for this world and I'll give you this crown. But the man did neither look up nor regard, but rake to himself the straws, the small sticks, and the dust of the floor. He was too consumed with the muckrake. He missed the crown of life that was being offered to him. Uh, the author of this book then says, it is a vivid picture of someone so enamored of this world that he gives no attention to the treasures and pleasures of the gospel. 
So Christian's response is, a telling, is as telling as it is wise. She does not say, I am glad that's not me. Rather, writes Bunyan, now he's quoting Pilgrim's Progress again, says this, Christina, then said Christina, oh, deliver me from this muckrake. Oh, deliver me from this muckrake. That's our prayer in this moment for our own hearts, is God, would you deliver me from the, the, the cares of this world, this muckrake that is... Uh, that I would rather, and this is, this is what I'm getting at, is, is the exchange of uh, everything we have, everything we are for the crown of life, is that the exchange of a, uh, my muckrake for a crown of life or my crown of life for a muckrake, which is the gospel? How do you view Christ? How do you view the gospel? Is Jesus of surpassing worth and value? And in this moment with this great shaking, God is shaking up idols and you don't know the strength of idols until they're taken from you. You don't know the strength of idols until God puts his finger there and says, this has to go. And I'm going to throw everything I have at you until this goes. And more than that, and more than that, just the light of the gospel shining more brightly for us, seeing this world as truly not our home, in this moment, the light of the gospel shines more and more brighter for the lost, dark, and dying world. Matthew 5, 14 through 16. I'll conclude this section, and then we'll move into the sermon with this verse. You are the light of the world. This is Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, talking to his disciples. Look at this beautiful identity declaration over us. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The bottom line is this. Jesus says we are the light of the world, the church, the light, not a light amongst many. The church, followers of Jesus, we are the light of the world. And the implication is that is if we in this moment cower in fear and hide, then the world stay dark, stays dark. If the light stays hidden, uh, the world continues to get darker and darker. But if we double down in this moment on loving God and loving our neighbor in the midst of darkness, I believe we will see God move in ways that we have never seen him move before, in us and through us. Um, I'll share it. Yeah, I'm going to share it, and then we'll segue into Ephesians 6. Uh, Saturday morning, I woke up, and my daughter said she had a dream uh, that she felt was like from the Lord. And uh, I believe from the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, God speaks to his people in dreams. God has spoken to me a lot in my dreams, and my prayer for my kids is that God would speak uh, to my kids and their dreams. So my daughter has this dream, and uh, we're all around our dinner table, and our dinner table uh, kind of backs up into this big window that is like, yay, big. And I was uh, kind of sitting back and, and I was uh, just coaching my daughter saying, hey, tell me, I'm going to pull out my phone and do what I do. Uh, I wrote down a dream I had last night at 3 a.m. So I'm so tired. I was up for an hour praying about this dream. Anyways, but uh, I, catalog, I categorize all these. I get all the details. I say, hey, I'm going to make a folder for you for your dreams on my phone. Tell me all the details of the dream. And this was the dream. Well, daddy, I, I was in the woods and, and I just, I saw all these dead animals. And then I would pray for them and then they would come to life. I saw these dead turtles. I was like, okay, let me pray for them. Boom, and they come up to life. I saw a snake. I prayed for it. came to life. I saw ducks. came for it. came to life. And there was another one. I forgot what it was. Like, all these, like, and I'm like, that's symbolic. That's, I don't know what that is. That's kind of cool. And then she felt like the Lord gave her a, a message, a word that lined up with the scripture. She didn't even know, which is amazing. And so I'm, like, writing all this down. I'm like, who was there? What was the setting? Okay. And then I say, hey, hey, let's just slow down, Kelsey, and... Um, Let's just ask the Lord if this is from him, and if it is, that he would give us the interpretation. And about, literally, Jen was there, no exaggeration. Within seconds of me saying that, 
over my back shoulder. Bam! And I'm like, oh my gosh, what was that? I thought someone threw a rock at my window. And all of a sudden, a bird went, head, sorry, I've made your baby cry, sorry. Uh, a bird went head first into the window and fell to the ground in the bushes. And I looked down, I go, you got to be kidding me. It's like lying limp in the bushes. The second, word, okay, so here's the context, in case you guys missed it. My daughter had a dream, let me retell it, okay, about praying for animals that were dead. And I say, hey, let's ask God to tell us what the meaning of the dream is. Bam, dead bird in the front yard. So we, we like, I'm like, oh my gosh, so we're running downstairs. I'm like, Kelsey, you better pray for that bird. You know, like, <laughs> let's go. And man, that thing is on its back, just like, I mean, I was pretty, it was pretty, I mean, Jen got kind of woozy looking at it, it was bloody, it was, it, was a, it, was a, it was in a bad spot, all right? Like, call the bird ambulance, like, get this thing on a stretcher kind of thing. And it just had, like, its little leg holding onto the branch, kind of like a bat upside down. And anyways, of course, you know, my kids are freaking out, crying, they're praying their guts out, and I have, you know, I'm doing what a dad does, have the, have the little plastic kid shovel trying to get the thing off the, you know, whatever, and as they're praying, you know, uh, long story short, the thing, boom, pops up and flies away. Okay? Now, I'm not making the case that, uh, you know, leave it up for grabs, whether you want to believe that was healing or not. Uh, I'm sure plenty of you have had birds run into your window. They get dazed, and then they snap out of it, and then they fly away, right? This bird was in a bad spot. But here's what I'm getting at. As I've been really, for the last 24 hours, really praying about this dream, because that was one of the, I mean, I've had a lot of crazy moments in my life with the Lord. That was a wild moment. I'm sorry. That was crazy. And no exaggeration, Jen saw it go down. That was just bonkers. So I'm like, there's got to be a deeper meaning here. And this is, I think, uh, the invitation to us in this moment. As ambassadors to our king, um, we, as light of the world, we are called to bring life wherever we find death. We are called to bring hope wherever there is despair. We are called to bring compassion wherever there is hatred. We are called to bring the peace and the prince of peace wherever there is anxiety and fear. This is our calling. This is our moment. And let's go to the Lord right now, the Prince of Peace, and let's pray, and then I will give a three-minute sermon <laughs> on Ephesians 6 to close our time. Uh, so let's pray. It's a heavy week, Father, for the world, heavy week for Israelis, for Palestinians, for those in the Middle East, for those uh, connected to this tragedy, to this conflict, God. God, we pray as you teach us to pray, God. We say, oh, Lord, would your kingdom come? Would your will be done in this conflict? Would your name be glorified? God, would you bring peace where there's hostility, generational hostility, rage, resentment, retaliation, revenge. Would you bring peace? Would your gospel be seen as the only cure, the only antidote for generational resentment and hatred and animosity? God, we pray for a great revival to sweep across Israel, to sweep across Palestine, to sweep across the Middle East, God. Would you uh, just open heaven? Would your spirit be poured out in dreams and signs and wonders? Would you empower Christians in Palestine, Christians in Israel, Christians in the Middle East, Lord God, for courage and boldness, strategic wisdom on how to share your gospel, God? Would you give uh, le leaders, God, 
in the West wisdom on how to lead, on what to do. And Lord God, we do pray, God, we do pray you would thwart the plans and purposes of the evil one overseas in that conflict, God, and in the American church and the church in the West, God, that we would double down, we would turn from idols, we would renounce everything we have as you command us to do in your gospel and turn to you and say, Jesus, my life is yours. Everything I have is yours. I follow you. I want to be about your kingdom. I want to see you come. I want to see the lost found, God. I want to be a true ambassador to your kingdom. So Holy Spirit, would you come and would you give peace where there's anxiety? Would you give compassion where there's resentment, Lord Jesus? Would you give hope where there's despair in our hearts right now, Lord God? If there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, Lord, you are the only one that can truly give peace. You're the only one that can truly give hope. You're the only one that can truly give life, Lord God. You alone are the source of these things. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. And so, Lord, with the beautiful sound of people crying out, Jesus, for you to save them from their sins and bring them back home to you, would that sound be heard today and across the globe today? So we pray, Lord, let your kingdom come and the spirit and the bride say, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come quickly. Put an end to all wars. And we thank you that we serve a king who has a plan and his plans and purposes will not be thwarted. There is a day that the Father knows it is on his calendar. It is happening. And we are headed towards that day. And nothing can thwart the purposes of God. And so we thank you, God, even though we don't know your ways, we don't know your plan, we don't necessarily know why, but we know that you are all good, you are all wise, you are all loving, and that through many tribulations we will make it to glory. So we set our eyes on you and we trust in you. And all God's people said, amen. All right, Ephesians 6, I'm going to do a fly over here. Ephesians 6, 21 through 24. This is what Paul says, his closing couple verses to the Ephesian believers. So that you may also know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. And I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with y'all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. What I want to do is I feel the Lord, or maybe it's just me, but I feel the Lord, I'm not going to, we're going to close Ephesians with that. And I'm going to invite the band up, and I'm going to talk about communion. And I want to give you guys ample time to fellowship with God in the Lord's Supper and in worship. And um, so if you are a Christian and in good standing with your church, if you're visiting us and you want to participate in communion, there's communion elements in the hallway uh, for you to grab and um, Jesus was no stranger to suffering, to betrayal. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he cried out to the Lord. He said, Lord, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will uh, be done. And before he was in that garden praying that, moments before he was sharing one last meal, Passover meal with his disciples, and he instituted the Lord's Supper. And he said, take this body and eat it. It's going to represent my, my body. This bread will represent my body broken for you. And drink this wine which will represent my blood, which is shed for you to atone for your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he said, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. How kind of our King Jesus to give us a visible representation and reminder of our King's love for us, of the sacrifice through, through taste, through touch, 
through this uh, corporate uh, uh, gathering, this, this celebration of what God has done. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And in the final benediction that Paul closes his letter with, he says, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible, love incorruptible. If you are in Christ Jesus, what this meal says is that God loves you with a love eternal, a love incorruptible, that Jesus Christ has paid the full price for your salvation for your sins. If you have said yes to the free gift of salvation, this is what this meal represents. That nothing, like we sang about today, nothing and no one can snatch us out of our Savior's love for us in Christ Jesus. And so this is our hope in life and in death, in war and in peace, in sickness and in health, that we belong body and soul to Jesus Christ because he gave his body first for us. And so all of us, the invitation is come to the table. I will conclude actually with Hebrews 11 that comes to mind. Um, it's in my notes and it'll be on the screen. Hebrews 4, sorry, not Hebrews 11, Hebrews 4, 15 through 16. I will read this. And I'll invite you to, 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 to pray and to keep fellowship with God by the Spirit as you take the Lord's Supper and then sing songs to our King and worship. This is what Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 says. This is the invitation today. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Then watch this. Here's the invitation. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you're in need of mercy because you're convicted of your sins and you need a savior, run to Jesus Christ, the throne of grace, not the throne of judgment or condemnation or guilt or accusation, the throne of grace. If you are in need of help, with your anxiety, help with your resentment, help in life. Go to the throne of grace for help in time of need. He is with us. He is near. He is present by the Spirit. Let's run to him, church. Let's run to him today. He's, he's welcoming, welcoming us with open arms.